Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, the Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled, The Church is Set Free. So turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, 21 to 29, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I remember on one occasion while I was serving as a pastor of a multi-ethnic congregation, I heard the story of a young Chinese woman. She had begun to attend, and she was hearing the stories of Jesus, well, for the very first time. And she was thrilled by what she heard, and yet up to that moment, she had not yet surrendered her life to Christ. And then something wonderful happened. You see, someone gave her a Bible in Chinese. Now, she could read English. That was not a difficulty for her. But when she read the scriptures in her own native language, or shall I say, in her heart language, she said, now I know this is for me. And she gave her life to Christ. You know, if you've only ever spoken one language, the story might be a, you know, a tad difficult to grasp. But if you go to a foreign country and learn that language, but then someone out of the blue addresses you in the language of your home, suddenly your eyes are going to light up because they're speaking to your heart. And language is like that. Yeah, I know that on the surface, language is just different sounds we use to express our thoughts and our speech. But of course, language is so much more than that. Language is culture. And of necessity, it includes things like food and music, ways of greeting people and ways of showing pleasure or displeasure and so much more. Now, today I'm not talking about language, but rather about culture. And I have for many years now noticed that different cultural groups are either open or closed to the gospel at different distinct points in time. You know, for years, I pastored a church and saw conversions on a weekly basis. And I often said that if I had been trying to reach average Canadian-born Caucasians, I'd have only seen the occasional conversion and fairly slow growth. But I noticed that Chinese and Koreans and, oh yes, Iranians, oh, the Iranians and other groups were so receptive to the gospel. And that's why I often tell churches that in Canada and in other places as well, if you want to grow the church, well, you want to give up on all the, you know, church growth gimmicks. I mean, they don't produce disciples. Rather, you'll want to focus on certain immigrant communities, for clearly God has opened a wide door to those groups. And if we had but the eyes to see what was happening, we, like Paul, would start reaching out to those who are Gentiles to us. But if the Church of Jesus Christ wears, you know, particular cultural clothing, that is, if the Church of Jesus Christ is but an expression of one culture, well, then we'll do one of two things. One will fail to have the eyes to see what the Holy Spirit is doing and where that might lead us. But second, we'll eventually end up in heresy. You know, for any time the gospel is locked into one culture and begins to deify the best things of that culture, then it begins to express disdain for others and of the gospel. Well, in our study of Acts, we've been examining Acts 15, which is the story of the Council of Jerusalem. And you'll remember that it was the demand by some that whenever a Gentile comes to Jesus as the Messiah, then that Gentile, if he's a male, he's going to have to be circumcised. He's going to have to adhere to all those ceremonial laws which make someone uniquely Jewish. And the Council of Jerusalem, although they didn't make a direct statement about circumcision, yet they made it clear that the Gentiles should not be troubled about this matter. Indeed, as James, who gives the final speech to the council, said, For Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, 
for he is read it every Sabbath in the synagogue. Now, that's a bit difficult to understand what James' point is, but here's my best take on what he's trying to say. I think James is saying, look, every synagogue has been teaching Gentiles about circumcision and dietary restrictions and laws about ritual cleanness as well as a whole host of other ritual matters. This has been proclaimed everywhere. But there have been plenty of Gentiles who have been deeply interested in the God of Israel, but still, they could not be convinced regarding those matters. And so perhaps it's time to drop all of this as a discussion item for the Gentiles. Well, at any rate, James has finished his speech, and in essence, the Council of Jerusalem would be over, except they still had to write things down and communicate their decisions as widely as they could, lest this important meeting would simply be forgotten. Look, I've been to plenty of meetings in my life, and most of those were some form of church meeting, but but here's what I've learned. We can discuss anything we want, and we can all agree on something, but if it's not written down accurately— Along with an action plan, well, it's as if nothing has happened at all. We might just as well gone out to a coffee shop and talked about anything at all. Indeed, that's not only true of church meetings, it's true of all business meetings or political meetings or school board meetings or library committee meetings. When it's not written down, followed by an action plan, no difference will ever happen. And so after so much had been discussed at the Council of Jerusalem, it was time for action. So let's begin to read what happened, and here we're reading Acts 15:22 to 23a. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, and with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Bersabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with a following letter. Well, with the meeting coming to an end, it was important for Barnabas and Paul, along with other members of the church in Antioch, to return home to their church. Remember, it was the church in Antioch that had first launched the first ever missionary team led by Paul and Barnabas. And after two years, well, those men came home and they proclaimed that a wide open door was there for the Gentiles. And then came the question, what do we do with all these Gentile converts? Well, the Christian Pharisees said, well, you need to go right back to them and circumcise all the males. And then came this rather furious debate, which of course resulted in the Council of Jerusalem. And the members of the congregation in Antioch, well, they didn't know what had been happening in Jerusalem. And for that matter, the new churches that had been established in Cyprus and in Pisidian Antioch, along with Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe, none of these churches knew what to do next. They were all waiting, and I have to imagine a certain degree of confusion reigned everywhere. And it's so important to remember, just because someone decided something at a meeting doesn't mean that anything has changed on the ground. Now, it could easily have been that the council would have thought it was good enough to simply allow the delegation from Antioch to go back to their own home church and report. But this council thought that action plan wasn't strong enough. It was possible that in the future, people might have differing views and opinions on what was accomplished in Jerusalem. And so they made a decision. Two of the leading elders from Jerusalem would be called upon to go back with the delegation from Antioch and they'd be called upon to read the concluding letter from the council. And what strikes me as interesting is the two men they chose. Well, the first one, well, I guess I have to admit we know almost nothing about him. His name is Judas. He's also called Bersabbas. That is, his name is Son of Sabbath or Son of the Sabbath. Now, that might simply mean that he was born on the Sabbath day, but it 
It might also mean that in some fashion, he was known for his faithfulness in in keeping the Sabbath. And if it's the latter, well, his presence must have been very important to the church in Antioch. And that's because he would have been known for someone who kept the Jewish law faithfully. And the second elder sent from Jerusalem was Silas. And of course, we know that this was the very same Silas who ends up becoming Paul's most trusted colleague in his coming missionary journeys. We learn later that he, like Paul, was also a Roman citizen, and that became very important because when Paul and Silas were beaten in the Greek city of Philippi, well, they immediately made use of their status as Roman citizens saying, look, this is illegal, there are going to be consequences, and so they had some form of protection. But Silas was also known as a preacher, and Paul mentions that in 2 Corinthians 1.19. We also know that according to 1 Peter 5.12, when Peter wrote 1 Peter, it was Salvanus or Silas who helped him write it. So we know he was of great value to the apostles. Well, at any rate, these two men were leading men from the church of Jerusalem, and that meant they had gravitas. I mean, when they showed up, I mean, you knew they represented the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. But the council of Jerusalem didn't just send these men. They did more. The council wrote a letter. Now, obviously, someone from the council wrote it, and then the entire council would have approved it. So the likely candidate about who wrote it, well, that must have been James. And what's also interesting is because Luke, who, as we know, was a historian, quotes this letter in its entirety, so it must mean he had a copy of it. That means that additional copies of that letter were, in fact, made. And I assume that when these people arrived in Antioch, The two men not only read the letter, but they issued a directive that many copies of this letter had to be made and that this letter would be shown in church after church to indicate exactly what the council stood for. And so the delegation left Jerusalem with a letter in hand. And because Paul and Barnabas had stopped at so many churches before they arrived in Jerusalem, explaining what God had done to the Gentiles, so I have to assume that this delegation was now on its way back and they stopped at every church. They read the letter in every church and they ordered that copies of this letter be made available for every church from Jerusalem to Antioch and beyond. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. Finally, the delegation from Jerusalem arrives in Antioch, you know, the place where all the trouble began in the first place. Luke now tells us what was in the letter, and so I'm reading Acts 15, 23b to 29. 
the brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore said Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So let's go through this letter carefully because I'm going to say this letter deserves to be studied even by the church today because this letter determined the way in which missions would be conducted for years to come. And I will also say that this letter, while it would have been well received with great rejoicing in in many places, at the same time, it would also have been a cause for a split between Judaism and Christianity, a split that would become pronounced in years to come. Okay, one step at a time. Notice that the letter begins by referring to the Jerusalem church as the brothers and then addressing the church in Antioch and then later to the other churches that Paul has also began as also brothers. That's to say the Jerusalem church believed that the other churches that were being formed around the world were equal to them, both in importance, but more also in terms of status. That is, all churches made up of followers of Jesus are brothers and sisters. We're one family. Whether we're Jewish or Greek or Roman or English or German or Indian or Filipino or Korean or Chinese or Iranian, the Council of Jerusalem wanted us to hear, we are one family. And I would add the following here. You know, the greatest sense of loyalty that any Christian should feel outside of loyalty to Christ is his or her loyalty and solidarity with the global Christian church. That is, your nation, whatever your nation is, is considerably less important than your loyalty to the global people of God. We're a family, and we belong to each other, not just now, but in eternity. And that's so important. You know, in this day, when so many Christians want to express, you know, patriotism to their country, and sometimes that's good, but listen, your first loyalty is to fellow Christians around the world and not to your nation. And if you can't say amen to that, I mean, chances are you're involved in idolatry. All right, that's the first thing we notice. Now, here's the next thing. Notice the humility in the letter. You know, we know, say the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, that we know that some of our own people came to your church and that their activity, while they were with you, brought trouble and harm. We acknowledge our part in bringing chaos to your church. That also is important. There's no attempt here to hide this matter. And that's something we can all learn from, can't we? Don't hide it if something happened because of you or people associated with you. Take responsibility for it. The Jerusalem church shows that it can be trusted. So next, notice that while acknowledging that these troublemakers came from their church, the leadership of the Jerusalem church now creates distance between themselves and these men. The leadership says, look, we gave these men no instructions as to what they taught. So how would the church in Antioch have heard that? Well, simply this they would have known that these men were not authorized by the Jerusalem church 
nor do their teachings represent what is taught there. In fact, these guys are freelancers. They're doing their own thing, and that also is important for us to hear. You know, when we listen to someone, when we follow a teacher, when we internalize what someone says, where exactly is that person getting their teaching from? Is it historic Christianity premised on Scripture, or is it something that's novel? Does it find its roots in historic apostolic doctrine, or does it have different roots? That's an important question. Okay, notice the next thing in the letter. Verse 25 is very powerful. Notice it now says, it seemed good to us having come to one accord. That is to say, the elders and apostles in Jerusalem were unanimous as to what they were writing. You know, this thing was, you know, not the result of a vote in which 52% of us or even 67% of us or 88% of us saw things one way and the majority wins. No, no, that's not what that letter is about. 100% of the leadership agreed. Oh my, when does that happen? But it did here. And that, says the letter, is why these two men, Judas and Silas, have shown up. They represent the entire leadership of the Jerusalem church. Notice verse 25 again, and now look at the entire verse, all the way to verse 26. It seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember how Paul and Barnabas debated with the Pharisees and how much confusion came about? Now we read that the entire leadership in Jerusalem calls Barnabas and Paul our beloved and mentions how they risked their lives for the gospel and how highly they are thought of by the Jerusalem church. Again, a very clear picture is forming. Here's one more important item before we get to the specifics of the letter. Verse 28 said, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. That is to say, we prayed together. We read scripture together. We listened to the Holy Spirit together. Now we're ready for the four instructions in the letter. And if you look at it closely, the instructions, they seem curious because the first three instructions seem to be related to Jewish food laws. And you'll remember the Pharisees had taught that you had to keep kosher food laws. The Council of Jerusalem said, actually, we only want you to pay attention to three of them. First, you must not eat what has been sacrificed to idols. And all the Gentiles, they would have understood that. Now that you're believers in Jesus, they were to separate themselves from every form of idolatry, and that had to include all foods that had been dedicated to an idol. And you might remember that later, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul dealt with this same matter. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, well, at first, it seems Paul contradicts this. He says that an idol has no real power, and so it really doesn't matter if their food is dedicated to an idol or not. Just eat, give thanks to God. But then in chapter 10, he strongly warns believers, well, in verse 14, flee all forms of idolatry. And that would have to mean flee any participation in anything that happens in one of the pagan temples. And then Paul explains himself. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23 and following. Eat whatever is sold in the market without asking if that meat came from the temple or not. However, in verse 28, if someone says this meat is offered as a sacrifice to a God in that temple, don't you dare eat it for the sake of your conscience and for the sake of the conscience of the person who sold it to you. And so we can see that Paul never denied what the council said. In fact, he affirms it. But he helps Gentile believers navigate how difficult this matter might be. Personal example. You know, I ministered among so many Chinese brothers and sisters, and it was explained to me that many Chinese restaurants have an idol in the entrance. 
That signifies that all the food in that restaurant has been dedicated to a pagan god and that Chinese Christians, if they're faithful, actually don't eat there. Great counsel. We all should hear this and we should do the same. Now, here's second from the Council of Jerusalem. Abstain from blood. You know, that means meat with blood in it. Well, the question that we might ask is simply this. Does that mean I can't have, you know, a steak served up rare? Well, yeah, you can, but let me explain. Meat that was eaten with blood in it was both a pagan ritual in that day and it became an offense among many Jews. The Council of Jerusalem thought that this eating of meat with blood could be the cause of separation between Jews and Gentiles in the early church. And so because of that, again, the association with pagan rituals, and because it could cause rancor between Jews and Gentiles, the Council of Jerusalem thought that the way to maintain unity is to ask Gentile believers to make a concession to their Jewish brothers and sisters and not divide the church on this issue. Agree that unity between people of various cultures in your church is more important than insisting on your rights. And then third, refusing to eat meat in which an animal had been strangled, well, that's the same stipulation as the earlier one. Strangled meat still has its blood in it, hasn't been drained. And then the fourth command, stay away from all sexual practices outside of heterosexual marriage. Anyone doing a study of pagan spirituality knows that the temples were filled with unclean sex. And so the Council of Jerusalem came to a conclusion. You don't have to be Jewish to be a Christian. Indeed, you can keep your cultural practices provided they don't conflict with the commands of Christ or break up the unity of your local church. Be like that and reach out to the world, said the Council of Jerusalem. John, I think we've spoken about this before, but do you think it's important for the North American church to to reach out more intentionally to those who are immigrating to our countries? Oh my, especially in this country. Ben, we have, you know, such a wide open door to immigrants uh, who are pouring in. We need them. We desperately need them. So, you know, economically we need them. But, you know, this is an opportunity for the gospel. They are, many who are coming, are so open to the gospel. I would argue every single church, whatever community you're in, ought to find out who the immigrant groups are and then develop a way to reach out to them with the love of Christ. This is a wide open door that the Holy Spirit has given us in this hour. If we don't grasp it, I think we're going to fail to obey Christ. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, The Missionary Enterprise, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission. In particular, those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. 
To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at 1-800-663-2425.